Axis Mundi. Axis Mundi. Hello, y'all. I'm back. Good to see you and good to be with you on the mic. Um, I want to thank all of you for the best wishes as uh, we kind of had a, a pretty eventful week. My second child was born this uh, past week. She's actually a week old now. And uh, so we're adjusting to life with uh, her and her two-year-old sister. My uh, wife and uh, our newborn are doing great. So everyone is happy and healthy, even if we're not uh, sleeping that much. Uh, really excited to sneak away for a couple minutes today and just be back with you to share some thoughts on some current events and other things happening. It's October, and uh, that means we have a new book recommendation for y'all. And this uh, month is uh, When Religion Hurts You by Dr. Laura Anderson. For those of you on YouTube, I'm holding it up here. Um, Dr. Anderson is uh, just uh, one of the world's, in my view, leading experts on religious trauma as uh, the co-founder for the Center for Trauma Resolution and somebody that I've worked with extensively in the past. Dan works with uh, currently as a practitioner at the center. And so I want to encourage you to check the book out uh, if you're somebody who is undergone religious trauma or somebody who has family members or friends who have or just want to learn more about what that is, this is really one of the first books on this subject. And so I would say, check it out. So When Religion Hurts You, Dr. Laura Anderson. Now, if you're listening or watching, um, go to the show notes and click our uh, our link and buy the book on our bookshop uh, book uh, recommendations list. It'll help us. It'll help Dr. Anderson. And uh, yeah, that's the best way to do it. Today, I want to jump into some stuff. Let me just stop and say one more thing, and then we'll jump in. We today released episode three of uh, Andrew Whitehead's American Idols, and it's all about how Andrew, a world-renowned sociologist, uh, stayed Christian, renewed his faith by leaving Christian nationalism behind. So if you haven't checked out American Idols yet, it's a produced series by us here at Access Mundi Media, and it includes uh, interviews with people you'll recognize, Robert Jones, Jamar Tisby, Anthea Butler, Paul Jupe, uh all kinds of different folks, Sam Perry, and and the list goes on. And it's really a great narrative series that unpacks what is Christian nationalism, why is it a threat to democracy, why is it a threat to Christianity, and what we can do about it. So check that out now. Inform Your Resistance, the other podcast we launched last month, uh, episode two is out, and it's all about racialized capitalism. So if you are somebody who wonders how race and capitalism intersect, and more specifically, how capitalism really has uh, been built in this country to marginalize and uh, oppress uh, people of color and how that happens systemically. The episode that we have out now, episode two with Saki Bati, will really help you understand that. So I would say check out Inform Your Resistance. You can get all of that at accessmundi.us. All right, let's jump into it. This past week, Joe Biden went down to Arizona and he uh, gave a speech that many, Jeff Charlotte, for example, on Twitter said it was one of the most profound speeches he's heard from an American president in his lifetime on the topic of American democracy and why it is so important. Uh, now, I know for many of you listening, 
Joe Biden is not an exciting person, and he's not somebody that no matter what anyone says, you're going to get excited about or feel anything for, and that's fine. And today, I don't want to do anything that's supposed to be a kind of, this is why you should think Joe Biden is the greatest thing in the world. What I want to do is analyze uh, what Biden said and how it relates to some things that I think are happening in our country. So um, Biden, one of the, the hallmark lines from the speech, and maybe the most memorable one, was this. We should all remember, democracies don't have to die at the end of a rifle. They can die when people are silent, when they fail to stand up or condemn threats to democracy, when people are willing to give away that which is most precious to them because they feel frustrated, disillusioned, tired, alienated. So I want to hold on to these ideas, right? I want to hold on to the idea that democracy dies when? Does it die at the end of the rifle? Maybe, maybe not. It dies according to Biden, when people are silent. Okay, so why would people be silent? If democracy is in, in peril, why would you be silent? Some of you might be thinking back to your, your days in school when you learned about Nazi Germany, okay? And inevitably, somebody always asked, well, why didn't the Jewish people resist? Or why didn't you know, certain German people stand up to Hitler, right? That was always a question when you're like in seventh grade or ninth grade, and you're learning about all this stuff. How come nobody like said something or did something, okay? When Biden says this line, that's what comes to mind for me, that democracy doesn't die at the end of the rifle, but when people are silent. And, you know, one of the things I saw on Twitter trending this this week, and I saw various folks who I respect, scholars and journalists, talking about how this is true, that democracies often die uh, not in one fell swoop, even though there are a history of coups and other things that have happened across the world, of course, but they die inch by inch and they die moment by moment, over time. And people become, and this is what Biden sa said, and I want to hold on to these ideas, okay? People become frustrated, they become disillusioned, they become tired, and they become alienated. All right, let's, let's come back to those in a second. He went on to say, democracy means rejecting and repudiating political violence regardless of party. Such violence is never, never, never acceptable in America. Now, he's obviously referencing things like January 6th, He's also referencing the fact, and he called this out by name in one of his speeches in Arizona, that Donald Trump uh, over the past week has gone on some rants that have included language of political violence. No surprise. One of those rants included suggesting that uh, General Milley, who just left his post as the, the head of the Joint Chiefs in the military, um, somehow partnered with Russia or China, excuse me. And it, he said it's, it's, you know, he did something that was um, deserving death or in, in certain days would have deserved death. And people across the world were like, former president of the United States just suggested that uh, General Milley uh, should be killed for treason. Okay. That was the takeaway for so many of us as we kind of read those words. Okay. So when Biden says that violence must never uh, be normalized to advance political power, that it has to be something that's rejected. I think we can all agree, right? Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. I don't think we should have a situation where people are saying that someone like General Milley should be, I don't know, killed for treason for some drummed up idea without evidence, without much uh, kind of data. There's, there's really nothing there except for vitriol from Trump. And therefore he says he should be killed, right? So I, I want to, Right at this moment, hone in on this word normalized. Okay, here's what Biden said again. Let me, let me, let me, let me say it for you one more time. Uh, he says, 
Democracy means rejecting and repudiating political violence, regardless of party. Such violence is never, never, never acceptable in America. It's non-democratic. It must never be normalized to advance political power. The idea is you cannot use violence or the threat of violence to get power. I don't know, to stay in office after you lose the 2020 election or use it to uh, sway votes in places uh, like Georgia or anywhere else. But I want to hone in on this word normalized. We live in an era, and I know you all see this. You see it on Instagram posts. You see it across the web. You, you hear it in the discourse. Normalize blank, right? Hey, let's normalize blank, okay? Let's normalize, you know, this thing that we think is a good idea, right? One of the things that I saw uh, recently is let's normalize um, polyamory, right? We've had all these like centuries and millennia of uh, monogamy, polyamory, no big deal. There should be no stigma surrounding it. Uh, normalize polyamory, right? And more and more people, if you look at the data, are polyamorous. And they're basically saying, you know, please don't treat this as something that is like uh, carries a stigma or is uh, aberrant, right? It's just people who love each other in various ways and no big deal, okay? Um, I'll give you an example from my life as a professor. I remember the first time that a student asked me to... Um, allow students when they introduce themselves on the first day of class to give their pronouns, right? You had a student, I think it was 2017, say, hey, Professor Onishi, like when we have, uh, we go around the room today, it's our first day, um, would you allow everyone to say like their name and where they're from and their major, but also what are their pronouns? And I thought, uh, sure, okay. I mean, no problem. That sounds fine. I had never thought to do that before. I'll be honest. This is, you know, six, seven years ago. Uh, but it wasn't something that I thought was problematic in any way. And, you know, things there's there's various discussions about whether asking people to say their pronouns puts too much pressure on them, et cetera. But that was new to me. And over time, as I, you know, over the last five, six years, it's kind of become normalized that a lot of professors will uh, allow students to say their pronouns uh, when they introduce themselves. And a lot of people put that like in their email signatures and other places. To me, that's a an example of like, we're normalizing this, right? We're saying, hey, um, folks might have different pronouns than you would expect. Folks might use they, like he, they, or she, they pronouns. You might not be used to that. So let's normalize people telling us their pronouns so we can all kind of uh, get accustomed to and adjust to the realities of various gender identities. Okay, sounds good. That's normalizing something that for me, before 2016, 17, as a professor, I just didn't do in my classes. But hey, um, you know, I'm going to learn, I'm going to grow. And yeah, that seems like a good idea, right? Well, there's a, an essay out uh, today by uh, Dr. Gavril Rosenfeld, who's at Fairfield University, and is actually the editor of a new book called Fascism in America, and hoping to interview Dr. Rosenfeld along with his co-editor, uh, uh, Dr. Ward, uh, in, in a few weeks. But he writes about the new normalization, okay? And one of the things that, that Rosenfeld argues in this essay is that we're in this time in the United States and really in the world of seemingly ongoing crisis, ongoing catastrophe. And I think on this point, he is right, that we live in a time where nothing seems normal, right? Let's just put it plainly. Nothing seems normal. The weather is not normal. We live in an age of climate crisis. Things are not normal. Sometimes you get a hurricane in Southern California. Sometimes New York City floods out of nowhere. Sometimes uh, this, the city of Lahaina on Maui 
burns down in an instant. A city that's near and dear to my family's heart, as people who, um, whose whose family story and American story goes back to Maui, uh, to the uh, 19th century. That's not normal. It's not things that 50, 60, 100, 200, 400 years ago were happening in our weather patterns, right? And it's just one example of things that are not normal. The pandemic, not normal. Think about, I know you don't want to think about it and I don't want to think about it either, but in those months in March and April and May of 2020, all the things that weren't normal, the ways that life got upended, the masks, yes, but the not celebrating holidays and the, the you know people not going to school and kids not being able to attend class and telework, the whole thing. I'm not going to go on and on about this. I think you get it. We live in an era where things just aren't dependable, where the normal doesn't seem like it's expected. We live in a time, in other words, of catastrophe, of crisis. Okay. So what Rosenfeld talks about is that uh, what this means is that we as people have to kind of accept new normals, or we have to normalize things that weren't there before, such as climate, the climate crisis. Like I often think, you know, to my mom's generation or my grandparents' generation, they didn't think about the weather and the climate in the ways we do. But we now live in a new normal where thinking about the climate is just something we have to do all the time. Where should we move? Should I take a job in that place? Should we travel in these months? Will there be hurricanes? Will there be monsoons? Will there be, uh, you know, whatever it may be? Okay, will there be flooding? So on and so forth. So he says, look, we have to sort of live in this world where we're always adjusting to a new normal or we're normalizing things that before weren't there. Okay, I think you get it. I think you understand what normalization is. Well, let's go back to Biden. Political violence must never be normalized, okay, because uh, it's anti-democratic. And he says that democracies die in silence when people get frustrated, disillusioned, tired, and alienated. I want to connect these dots and I want to talk about how this, and if you're like, what is the thesis for today? It's this. Because we have to normalize so many things in this era, because there's so many things that we kind of have to adjust to, accept, build our lives around, I think it is easy to become exactly what Biden said, frustrated, disillusioned, tired, and alienated in a way that we just say, well, there's a whole new thing happening. It's scary. It's unprecedented. But I don't have the energy. I don't have the focus. I don't have the reserves to pay attention because I am tapped out. And I'm afraid that that's what's happening in our democracy. If we turn our attention to politics, to the looming presidential race on a day when Donald Trump appeared in New York court because of his fraud, suit when he's been indicted 91 times on 91, four times on 91 counts. Okay. I'm afraid that we're in a place where, as Biden says, uh, our democracy is on the brink because of us growing frustrated, disillusioned, tired, and alienated as a result of normalizing political crisis. Let me be more blunt. As a result of us normalizing rising fascism in our country. We have lived, if you go back to the first Trump campaign with a Trump uh, political figure since 2015, like we are closer to a decade of Trump as a political figure than we are of any, uh, uh, anything else. It's been almost a decade of this. There's been so much that's happened, but we can all agree that as time goes on, the rhetoric never gets softer 
it never becomes more moderate. It gets worse, more extreme, more ramped up. For example, he said he kind of thinks General Milley should be tried for treason and put to death, and it really was no big deal. Y'all, there was a time when Barack Obama was running against John McCain, when Barack Obama was running against Mitt Romney, when John Kerry was running against George W. Bush, that for one of them to say something like this would have been the end of their political careers. They would have gone away, never to be heard from again. Neither party would have called them. They would have been persona non grata. You can never show your face on a political stage. You're not going to help someone run for Congress. You're not going to give an endorsement. You're nobody. CNN is not going to put you on the, the, the TV so you can be a commentator. Just go away. It was barely a blip. It doesn't mean any. Here's a man saying, I was the president. If I'm president again and I'm leading in, my, in the Republican primary, I kind of think putting the, the former uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff to death is what we should do. Okay. So what does that mean? It means that it's become normalized. Trump is somebody who has normalized what I would call fascist impulses in our midst. It's become normal. So let's talk about normalization. And this is where I return to Gabriel Rosenfeld's essay called The New Normalization. He says this, the first way that deviant acts are normalized is through redefinition. Liberal commentators have invoked different theoretical explications of this process to explain the behavior of Donald Trump. Some have cited Daniel Patrick Moynihan's concept of defining deviancy down, which argued that societies often contend with increasing rates of deviant behavior by lowering their standards for defining abnormality. So this is a pretty clear example of normalization. You just redefine what is abnormal. Again, 2003, a presidential candidate says, hey, I think we should put the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the outgoing Joint Chiefs of Staff to death. Uh, your political career is over. I mean, it is going to be outrage after outrage from both parties. In 2023, the increasing rate of deviant behavior by Donald Trump and many other political figures means We've lowered our standards for defining abnormal. Most people don't even know he said that. Unless you're like me, right? Somebody who does this all the time and is always paying attention because this is what I do and many of you out there are the same way. Unless you're one of us who's just glued to all of these things and paying attention and really digging in, you probably missed it. And I'm not saying you're somebody who doesn't read the news, doesn't pay attention. You might you know, read the New York Times in the morning or watch cable news at night or whatever. You're somebody who tries to stay informed, listen to NPR on the way to work. You might've missed that I don't know, the man who might become president in a year, who is leading it by a lot in the GOP primary, is like, yeah, put that guy to death. For what? Basically, because I just don't like him. Okay. He also said, I'll just add this in right now. Trump also said uh, that, uh, you know, when you're, when you're leading someone in the polls, he, he claims he's leading Biden in the polls by 15 or 20 points, that you should indict the mother effer. I'm not going to say the word because I have to bleep it and the whole thing. So it's not, I'm not a prude. I just don't feel like having to go through all that. So here's a presidential candidate calling his, his uh, presidential uh, uh, opponent, his, his uh, political opponent, a mother effer, okay? Saying, yeah, just indict him. Because he, can you imagine, can you imagine George H.W. Bush calling Bill Clinton that? Can you imagine Mitt Romney calling Barack Obama that? No, but we've lowered our standor, standards for what is abnormal. Okay, another important component of normalization according to Rosenfeld, is destigmatization. 
Okay. So what is destigmatization? As Kristen Harlow explains, removing the barriers of shame surrounding a behavior or belief helps integrate it into mainstream society. So if you destigmatize something, you admit it into mainstream society. I don't know, saying that you want to uh, kill a, a former Joint Chiefs of Staff, you want to lock up Hillary Clinton in 2015, right? Uh, you want to enact vengeance. I mean, Trump said this this weekend, I am your vengeance. I'm your retribution, okay? Uh, when you go to Trump rallies and see people, right, calling for the hanging of people like Mike Pence, that's a destigmatization of behavior or belief. It says, that's totally fine. Yeah, you can be a Republican, American, a normal guy, normal gal, whoever you are. That's normal. Normal. Totally normal. No big deal. Yeah, we're good. Right? That's destigmatization. We have destigmatized so many things, y'all, in this, in this country as, over the last eight years uh, of this whole Trump era. Okay? Another integral feature of normalization is repetition. Now, now, I think really this is where Rosenfeld starts to get into things that really catch my attention and are really important. Repetition. Okay? He, he quotes James Harbeck. Repetition leads to acceptance. If we see something regularly, we come to view it as normal. Let me say that again. If we see something regularly, we come to view it as normal. I want to stop right here and say that what has happened with Donald Trump is that he has been around so long, he has sort of continued the rhetoric that when he says things or people say things that are quote unquote Trumpian, when they sound like Trump, when Carrie Lake or Doug Mastriano or Ron DeSantis or anyone else sounds like Trump, when Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert any of these people sound like Trump, the repetition is so deep. We've been dealing with it for so long that it leads to acceptance. And I just want to say that, like, think about people in your life. Y'all ever have someone in your life who seems to operate by different rules? They seem to do things however they want, and usually in a bad way or a selfish way or a kind of way that others wouldn't. And over time, as you stay in a relationship with them, maybe they're your mother, maybe they're your cousin, maybe they're your friend, maybe they're your spouse. I don't know. A lot of times we're in relationships with people and we feel like, you know, we have to stay in a relationship with them because they're our family or some, for some other reason. And you sort of start to get a different set of rules for that person because you know that they'll never abide by the kind of relational standards that you have with everyone else. And so when they do something, you, you look at it in one way. And if anyone else does it, you would be like, what's your problem? A friend or a family member or they wouldn't do that. What's wrong with you? But if it's the other person, you're like, well, yeah, that's how they work. That's how they operate. That's called normalizing that person's behavior. The repetition of their behavior means you start to just accept it, right? You just start to accept all the things, right? And one person says all of the abominable everyday things because you have to accept it. Otherwise, you'd have to break off that relationship with that person. And what's happened in this country is that Trump has been around eight years and he has spawned so many political, uh, you know, generations now. The Kerry Lakes, the Matt Gates, the Boberts, all those people, okay? The, the Christy Gnomes, the Ron DeSantis, everybody that, that we think of. That the repetition makes us accept it, right? Okay. So we have this popular acceptance of abnormal behavior, this popular acceptance of what I would call with Trump, fascist behavior. He's telling us what he will do 
if he is president again. He will kill his political enemies. He will take over the federal government. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago on this show. Project 2025. I am going to fire anyone who's not a loyalist. He's telling us what he's going to do, y'all. And we've just accepted it because of the repetition over and over and over again. We just accept it. Now, that leads to a couple of other factors. And I'll go through these quickly because I, I know I'm, I'm talking a lot today. Okay. It means that we've all had to adapt. We've had to accept the exceptional as normal, right? We've had to accept the exceptional as normal. We wake up every day and we do not have a normal operating country. And I'm not saying that the normal operating uh, status quo of the United States before Trump was just or humane to everyone or anything like that, by no means. But we do wake up in this country now with a situation where, yes, uh, we have to wake up to the former president saying he'll kill his political enemies. We have to wake up to the, to the fact that he's willing to call his political opponent like crass, crass names. We have to wake up to the fact that in his speech, he mocked Paul Pelosi, who was beaten almost to death, and make a joke of him. I want you to stop and think about that. Think about if you knew of someone, your neighbor, your coworker, your ex-girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, somebody that you may not feel all that great about just because things didn't end well. And they were had their home broken into and were beaten one inch from their death. Would you make a joke about that? Would you let other people make a joke about it? But we have to stand here and accept the exceptional as normal because that is what is normal now in American politics and American life. And it leads to the second thing. It means we're desensitized, right? We're desensitized to what is called, and, and Rosenfeld says this in the, in the essay, the restless onslaught against democratic norms. When it just happens over and over and over again, you become desensitized. I think we all know how this works. You don't even, you don't even look up anymore because you're like, yeah, that, it just keeps happening. What am, I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? Look up, react, go into outrage mode every time it happens? Yeah, maybe in 2016 I did that and then 2018 and maybe again in 2019, but you know what? It's 2023. I'm so desensitized. <laughs> It just keeps happening. I don't even notice anymore. This is what happens with mass shootings in this country, right? We have a mass shooting, three people, five people, eight people. Sometimes it doesn't even make the news. If it's 30 people, it does for a week and then it goes away. We're desensitized, okay? There's also a sense of self-defense. Why, why are we desensitized? Because we have to be in order to survive, okay? There's a 2016 Baltimore Sun uh article that puts it this way. Many are attempting to normalize Trump's behavior as a coping mechanism to get through the day. Developing a callus, Jared Yates Sexton says, is much easier than continually suffering a raw wound. We oftentimes become desensitized because it's a way of coping. It's a way to get through. And I get it. I'm not, I do it too. I can tell you that when I think of Maui and Lahaina because of my family's history and ties and family and friends who are there, it hurts my heart. It hurts my soul to even think about Lahaina right now in Maui. But I can tell you that when New York City was flooding this weekend, yes, I paid attention and I read about it, but ultimately it didn't affect me in the same way. And part of it was because I, I know this, so many of these things happen every, every week and every month now that it's hard to give my whole emotional self to those things without becoming 
just totally, uh, you know, weakened and imploding. If I'm going to cope, I have to kind of become desensitized to what's happening. And I think that's what's happened with Trump. One more, and that's self-delusion. David Remnick of The New Yorker uh, talked about it this way after Trump was elected. He was mystified that, quote, Washington is going about its business talking about who's going to get what jobs. You would think that Mitt Romney had won. It's a hallucination. I think we see this right now. We've had Republican debates. We have, we still have the ongoing cable news 24 hours a day uh, beat. Uh, we have nonstop coverage of everything that there could be to cover, whether it's online, whether it's cable news, whether it's newspapers, whatever. And one of the things that happens because those people need content and they need to kind of keep going is we just pretend like it, things are normal. Who's going to win? What do voters feel better about when it comes to the economy, Biden or Trump? What, what about immigration? Oh, wh what will a Trump presidency mean for the economy? Are you kidding? Why are we talking about whose policies on job creation are better? The only conversation should be, if Trump wins, we will not have a United States that resembles or gestures toward a democracy anymore. Period. So we, we have this sense of hallucinas, hallucinization, hallucination because we don't want to live in the reality we live in now. And we all do this, friends. Come on. Right? We escape. We disassociate. We, you know, however we try to regulate ourselves. I can tell you I have a two-year-old and a newborn. And there's about like 15 minutes at the end of every day where I have to myself. Right. And I can like, you know, scroll Instagram or I can, you know, do Duolingo or do something. Right. Just to kind of like turn off a little bit. Should I be looking at the screen before bed? Probably not. I know some of you are going to email me about that. Right. But we all sort of just kind of escape a little bit sometimes. Well, self delusion when it comes to the normal normalization of catastrophe is, is part of that. Okay. Now, what these leads to, and this is what I'm really afraid of, and this is what I'm driving at today. It leads to capitulation. It leads to legitimate, legitimation. And these are things Rosenfeld talks about in the piece. When we get to the places of hallucination, of, of fatigue, of desensitization, of, of adapting to the exceptional as normal, when we turn things that are uh, shameful, that should be stigmatized, things that are uh, really out of bounds into things that we just give into, into things that we accept. We really get to a place where I think um, it's, it's dangerous because um, the threat is still there, even if we're tired, even if we don't want it to be, even if we just wish we lived in just a different world for just one second. We really don't want this to be our life anymore, but it is. So if we capitulate to that, if we just say, well, there's nothing I can do, or if we just stop paying attention, or if we just think, well, it, it's not a big deal right now, and maybe in a year it will be, I think we're going to get to a place um, where we are going to wake up and say, why didn't we do something when we could have? Why, just like that seventh grader asked when learning about Nazi Germany, why didn't we do something when every day the norms were becoming? eroded to the point where threats of killing generals, threats of killing political opponents, January 6th, people comparing Jamal Bowman pulling the fire alarm. I don't know why Jamal Bowman pulled the fire alarm. I have no idea. I'm not going to sit here and say I do. 
but comparing that to the insurrection. Why didn't we do something? Why didn't we? And I know some of you are listening like, Brad, I've done so much. So have I. I'm with you, okay? And I'm not trying to say you haven't. I'm not accusing you. I'm not trying to like admonish you. I'm not doing any of that, right? Here's what I am saying is that Biden goes down to Arizona and he gives this speech and it's all really couched in John McCain stuff. He's going to, op they're opening a new John McCain center and it's a kind of way for Biden to uh, point to a Republican who seemed to have some values, right? And some ideals and say, hey, there used to be a world where my political opponent would have been like John McCain. We would have disagreed, but we wouldn't have had what we have now. We wouldn't have had threats of death and political violence and retribution and insurrection and, and all of that, right? We wouldn't have mass chaos and, and carnage. This was the way Biden kind of got into it. Hey, here's McCain, the, the new legacy McCain Center opening. Wouldn't it be great if we went back to that? It's not what we have anymore. We have this guy, Donald Trump. That's why he was there. And I just want to, I want to close with this. I'm going to stay in Arizona and then I'll, be, I'll, I'll wrap up for today. Arizona is a place that in the last round of elections, Mark Kelly uh, is a senator now. Mark Kelly was arguing with Tommy Tuberville over the, over the last week about military and other things. Mark Kelly won his seat, not by a ton, but he beat Blake Masters. Okay. Was it by 28 points? Was it by 57 points? No. Governor in Arizona was a slim, slim, slim margin. You know who almost won there? Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake might be more Trumpian than Trump. Carrie Lake is now, I think, going to run for Senate. Carrie Lake almost became the governor of Arizona, like by the very little slightest of margins. So here's Biden standing in, in the Southwest in Arizona in a place that if things had broken different, might have had Blake Masters somebody who was bankrolled by Peter Thiel and who many were very scared by in terms of his right-wing approach and his seemingly lack of empathy and humanity, just his, his real seemingly cruel demeanor. And Carrie Lake, maybe the most Trumpian spawn of the, of the political Trump era, just like a real gaslighting, uh, cruel political candidate. All right. So let's take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to wrap this up by providing a little bit of historical context and uh, explain why uh, Biden's remarks really kind of set off a set of uh, alarms might be the wrong word, but uh, really kind of brought some some thoughts and, and knowledge to the fore for me that uh, lit up my brain a little bit. So we'll be right back. All right. So Biden's in Arizona. He's giving these remarks, and the reason he's in Arizona ostensibly is to uh, open, uh, introduce this new uh, complex for uh, Senator John McCain and his legacy as a war veteran, as a POW, as a senator, and so on. But if you've read my book, you know that there's a history here that is worth recounting. And the history that I'm talking about is the history that uh, points us back to John McCain. So John McCain... If you're old like me, you might remember, but John McCain ran against Barack Obama in Obama's first election. Now, McCain was a longtime senator in Arizona. McCain was a war hero. Uh, he was a POW. He was famously disparaged by Donald Trump in the first campaign. He talked about how uh, he, he doesn't, he likes heroes that, that aren't captured or things like that. 
So McCain was always known as this maverick, this sort of centrist in the Senate who uh, did things to flout uh, traditional uh, party lines, and he worked across the aisle, and that's what he was known for. All right, great. Now, the first part of the history, if we go backwards, that many of you have heard Dan mention over and over on the show is that John McCain famously chose Sarah Palin to be his running mate when he ran against Barack Obama in 2008. Well, that was really for many a kind of resurgence of the religious right into presidential politics because Sarah Palin was, of course, uh, a figure on the religious right, governor of, of Alaska, and somebody that really brought the whole ethos of the, the religious right and Christian nationalists back right into the spotlight. And McCain was never going to be that guy. Romney eventually would not be that guy. But Palin, yes, she was right from that world and she was right there to to give all the talking points and all the points of view on abortion and on femininity and on womanhood, uh, on uh, foreign policy, so on and so forth. So that's one, right? McCain, despite all of his centrism and his working across the aisle, is in some ways responsible for reintroducing some of these uh, dynamics into our national political sphere. But if we go back further, there's something that's really quite fascinating to me about Arizona. Arizona is a, a state that's always been somewhat individualist. You know, you have this image of the rugged, soul, lone cowboy who does what he wants and does it his way. And that's kind of, you know, if people talk about Arizona politics, that's kind of how they talk sometimes. Well, who was the senator right before John McCain? Who, who did John McCain secede in the Senate from Arizona? None other than Barry Goldwater. Now, Barry Goldwater is somebody I talk about a lot in my book, but I just want to go over this here because it's really interesting to think about Biden in Arizona commemorating McCain. McCain not only chooses Sarah Palin and reintroduces this whole element into our politics, not only did Biden debate Sarah Palin on the debate stage way back when, right? Not only did they square off in a, in a presidential uh, campaign, but Biden's in Arizona commemorating McCain, and McCain is the one who takes over in the Senate for Barry Goldwater. Now, Barry Goldwater was a longtime senator in Arizona. He also was somewhat of a maverick, but in a different way. But as you know, and if you might have heard me talk about, Goldwater ran for president in 1964. He ran against Lyndon Johnson. Now, Goldwater, like Trump, was never supposed to be the candidate. And yet Goldwater, who fl flouted all the kind of party lines and norms, beat Nelson Rockefeller, who was kind of a Mitt Romney kind of figure, central, country club, rich as hell. This is the person that the Republican Party wanted to be at the top. Well, Goldwater wins. So here's Goldwater, the Arizona senator, the cowboy senator, the rugged individualist, the non-intellectual, somebody whose sister said he probably never read a book cover to cover. The guy who didn't graduate from college took over the family business. Goldwater runs, and he runs as this guy who introduces something into our politics, at least in the presidential realm, that had not been there for a long time. He is a firebrand, he is a libertarian, and he does not hold back in terms of rhetoric. He normalized things that were not normal. He made things that were once thought taboo, stigmatized, out of bounds. He made them something that were part of the American right and the Republican Party. He talked about using nuclear weapons uh, in Vietnam. He totally openly says, I will never support legislation that will advance civil rights in the country. That's up to the communities and the people to figure it out. He's somebody who says the government should have their hands off of, of 
uh, of uh, social policies. He wants to be aggressive and warlike when it comes to foreign policy. And when it comes down to his acceptance speech uh, for the GOP nomination, many of you have heard me say this time and time again. He says these words, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice and moderation is no virtue. Think about those words in terms of everything I've said today about normalization. In 1964, Barry Goldwater was a Republican candidate who said, you know what? I want to normalize extremism. I don't want extremism to be stigmatized. And if you Republicans want to win, if you want to take your country back, then you need to get over it and be extremists and be radicals. Don't let them stigmatize you. Don't let them label you. Say exactly what you feel, as bigoted, as extreme, as warlike, as violent as it may be. Now, Goldwater was supported by so many white, conservative, radical Christians, many of them from Southern California, from Arizona, from LA, from the, and the Deep South. I've chronicled all that in my book. And if you haven't written it, you want to know more, or read it, and you want to know more, it's all there. Now, he loses in grand fashion. Lyndon Johnson beat him uh, handily. Lyndon Johnson got over 400 electoral votes in that election. But you know what? Goldwater normalized extremism. And the people that were in his campaign, they didn't forget that. And they didn't give up. So what happens is people who were in his campaign, like Dana Rohrabacher, who became Putin's favorite congressperson, he said, I'm going to fulfill the mission of Goldwater. And he went on to serve uh, in the Reagan administration and then in Congress for decades. You know who else was in the Goldwater campaign? Paul Weyrich. Paul Weyrich was the founder of the Council for National Policy, the founder of the Heritage Foundation, the founder of ALEC. Now, think about it, y'all. I've been talking all day about Trump and the normalization of Trumpian politics, of what I would call fascist politics in this country. And Trump has spawned so many copycats, Carrie Lake and Boebert and Gates and DeSantis and the list goes, Ramaswamy goes on and on and on and on. Who is the, who is the think tank that wrote the Project 2025 handbook for Trump to use if he wins again, to basically bulldoze the State Department and the bureaucratic levers of the federal government so that he can put in place only loyalists. The Heritage Foundation. Who started the Heritage Foundation? Paul Weyrich. Where did Paul Weyrich learn uh, the chops and, uh, of politics? Under Barry Goldwater and his campaign. So Biden standing in Arizona talking about not normalizing political violence, about not allowing democracy to die in silence, has an incredible set of historical convergences for me. Goldwater, Weyrich, Trump, on and on and on and on. I guess for me today, the biggest takeaway is it makes a lot of sense if all of us are tired, if in some ways we've developed calluses to get through it, we have our coping mechanisms, and uh, we're just not people who want to live every day in crisis political and social crisis. I don't want to either, especially after a pandemic, especially as we deal with a climate disaster. I'm with you. I would say, though, that Biden's speech was a really good reminder that 
uh, what is coming for us is something um, that is going to be really hard and it's not over yet. And so I want to encourage you to take that in, to think about um, the state that we are in as uh, a, a political body, as a social body, and to find ways to remind yourself that if we're going to preserve things that we find to be good and beautiful and true, as lacking as the United States is in terms of equality, in terms of uh, representation, in terms of so much humanity, then we have to face where we are and not run away from it. And that's not easy. Uh, it's not something that I think can be uh, done with a simple flick of the wrist. But every so often something happens that reminds me that it's worth for us to uh, take hold of where we are and uh, prepare for what's next. Because you saw today Trump in court was angry. He was flustered. He's only going to get more outlandish as the months go on. The rhetoric will only get more outlandish and violent. Just today, and I'll just mention a few more things as we close here. I saw uh, former aides to Chuck Grassley and Neil Gorsuch calling uh, for the, these are his words, the black underclass to be reined in and for these thugs to endure mass incarceration. I saw prominent people on the right saying that uh, if you are going to be a congressperson or a politician in this country, that you should have to uh, pledge allegiance to Christ. These are the kinds of things that are now normal in our politics. Is it all because of Trump? No, we've said it over and over. But he helped blow the floodgates open. And this is where we are. Every day, this kind of rhetoric coming at us, the repetition, the onslaught. So I just want to encourage you, take stock of that because it's not, it's not going to dissipate anytime soon. And as much as many of us have fought uh, this far, to uh, see that Trump didn't get a second term, to uh, see that uh, any sense of democracy and, uh, and uh, its, its workings were preserved, um, that fight's not over. So uh, I wanted to just get on the mic today uh, as I come back from the, the birth of my second child and still not doing as much work and as much stuff behind the scenes as I usually do. But this seemed really important to me and I wanted to get it off my chest. So I, I appreciate y'all listening. Appreciate y'all uh, being here. I want to say thank you to all of our patrons and the people that support us. I want to say thank you to everybody who makes this show happen. And I just want to say one more thing. We are uh, have launched Access Mundi Media. And the whole reason we did that is to create reliable and relevant content that uh, helps safeguard democracy. And so if you want to learn more about that, that's at accessmundi.us. And if you want to support us, if you've already checked that out, and you're like, yo, I'm on board. That seems like really important stuff. What you guys are doing with your the shows you're coming out with, how can I help? One way you can help is becoming a paid member of our Access Moonity Substack. That's a big one. Um, you can also support us on Patreon, Three Straight White American Jesus. You can also buy our merch or buy books that are in our recommended book reading list because all of that uh, helps us as well. And you can tell people about the show. So thankful for y'all. I appreciate this community. I appreciate all of you who listen and watch. Uh, we'll catch you on Wednesday with It's in the Code and Friday with the Weekly Roundup. But for now, I'll say thanks for being here. Have a good one. Axis Mundi.